0: This week on Hangar Talk, owners of Continental Engines may have to get out their pocketbooks.
1: And we're going to talk about the fairness for Pilots Act introduced in the house.
0: Remos and Stemi, a marriage made in what? <laughs> and
1: speaking of what, Diamond launches three high-performance singles. All right, David, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar talking.
0: Welcome to Hangar Talk. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. And David, let's just get the bad news right out of the way. Okay. Let's talk about this Continental, so right, now, right now, temporarily, uh, mandatory service bulletin. Right. I say temporarily because we think this is probably going to be an AD. Uh, in fact, Continental put something out, and this is the latest today, saying that uh, they're working with the FAA on the development of the AD. But before we get into that, let's back up a little bit and talk about what this is all about. So... Big bore, Continental engines.
1: These are the ones that are powering a lot of aircraft that we find common today. Cirrus has a pretty big engine in it. Yep, the IO-550, it applies to that one. And the 470 that's in a lot of 182s. Yep,
0: yep, so the IO-470
1: and uh, also the
0: IO-520. Right. So this mandatory um, service bulletin, which hopefully you know, if you're flying Part 91, you don't have to comply with, right. says that quote on all engines currently configured with camshaft gear part numbers, and then there's a bunch of numbers, right? Um, which you'll want to look up on the website within 100 hours of operation, at the next engine overhaul, not to exceed 12 years time in service, or whenever the camshaft gear is accessible, whichever occurs first. First, that's important. It is um, with camshaft gear number, blah 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 blah.
1: So, so with a service bulletin, like you said earlier, Part 91, you don't you don't have to do something with that. Yes. It's a great idea to do that and keep an eye on it as an owner to, to be safe.
0: Yeah, but what? What's and stri- if you're going through an overhaul or something, I mean, you're gonna, you're going to comply with this, right, right? Obviously, but the difference between a service bulletin and an AD, obviously, the AD becomes mandatory.
1: Mandatory, and yeah. and either one costs a few dollars out of your pocket. Oh, no yeah, yeah. Yo, yeah. So um, now Continental put something out.
0: Uh, this is what I think, just today or or last night that um, said that they are working with the FAA on the issuance of an AD. So we do expect that probably to happen.
1: Do you think there might be an alternative way to comply with the service bulletin or potential AD? Uh, that's a good question. A lot of times that, that does happen. And then what happens, uh, at least when I was in the like the Mooney owners group, yeah, the folks in the group themselves uh, during the chat digest and all, some people would be mechanics and they would, you know, say, hey, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? Yeah, And a lot of times that actually mitigated some of the costlier, you know, suggestions
0: yeah and you would think okay well hey if my engine's been um overhauled then i probably have this new part and everything's going to be fine these are these are the cam gears by the way right well uh, continental says they have a list of faqs and yeah. the, the stuff they just put out recently how do i know if my engine's affected and they say okay well first you have to check the model list and it's and it's a number of them we just mentioned a few if your engine was manufactured or rebuilt by continental Factory. factory. Only the factory. After August 9th, 2005, your engine's not affected.
1: Oh, that's good. But that's it. The But that's the last 12 years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, obviously, a lot of older airplanes probably have not gone through a remand.
1: That's true. Yeah. Especially if, if, if someone doesn't fly the airplane that much. Um, so, they might have to really... Uh, double check that be yeah. really on top of it. Yeah. But that brings up a question I was going to throw out the table here and to our podcast listeners, which is that if you're flying an airplane with a, with a big bore engine like that, you might hit that 100 hours pretty darn soon. Oh yeah. Cause, yeah, cause people
0: are traveling with them. Right. They're yeah.
1: going place machines. Yeah. A Mooney or a Cirrus. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I think they're going to hit it fast. And so AOPA is obviously on this, um, been, uh, working with the FAA. So, I, you know, we'll see what happens. I think this is going to take a little while to shake out. We've, we've been working with the owners groups, obviously, which is important. Right. Um, so I think a lot more to come on this, but uh, you, potentially a big deal for kind of You
1: know, owners. I was, was going to let our uh, listeners know that a lot of people don't know that AOPA works behind the scenes and really gets uh, heavily involved with some of this type of stuff, especially ADs where it's going to cost our members out of their pocket. Yeah. And we have a whole team of folks that are really scrutinizing this. So it's not just something that we take lightly.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of this stuff, like you say, it's like – things that we've probably been working on in the past and maybe we just haven't heard about. But um, And this one is the case. They yeah. haven't been working on this for a long time. So, I right. Well, hopefully, yeah.
1: hopefully we get some solution
0: to that pretty soon. Yeah. So next thing, good news. Real good news. Yeah. If you're this a pilot. Cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we talked, I guess, a couple podcasts ago about Senator Inhofe's
1: um, Fairness for Pilots Act. Basically what we were calling the, the Bill of Rights 2 yeah. to a
0: degree. Yeah, right. And I know this gets really confusing with names because it's like, well, we thought third-class medical reform was Bill of Rights 2, and it sort of was, but then it stripped out. It's and its so, own thing. Yeah, so the Pilot's Bill of Rights 1, you remember, made it through Congress and That's was it. signed. And um, so this is a follow-up essentially to that that was first introduced in the Senate, and now it's in the House.
1: That's right. Uh, U.S. Rep Sam Graves introduced this this past week. And it's really cool, I think, for a lot of our members to know that, that they will now possibly have representation if if there's a movement um against them. Yeah. By what? By the FAA or the NTSB or now the FAA? Yeah, the FAA. FAA. So
0: it is It is really confusing because we we're talking a little bit of minutiae. Basically, you know, if, if you never get violated, you don't have to worry about this. But if you do, uh-huh. um, a lot of folks might not realize the way that it works, the appeal process, it's like, well, you go to the FAA, then you appeal through the NTSB, and then the whole NTSB, and then it goes theoretically to district court. And where does that leave a pilot, though? Yeah, I know. Well, expensive for one thing, right?
1: Yeah, it does cost out of the bottom yeah. line out of your pocket.
0: Yeah. So one one of the issues is that basically the fact-finding part of that gets limited at a certain point. Yeah. And then they can only start to appeal on sort of technicalities.
1: So it makes it hard to, to uh, present your case. Yeah. If you're a pilot. Absolutely. And so this would actually give pilots some more representation mm-hmm. and would actually put the it would put the burden back on the FAA. Yeah, right? that's right. On regulatory and agencies. Yeah,
0: and... Um, and the nice thing is, and so really the meat of it's right here. It says, aviators would gain the right to appeal an FAA decision through oh, yeah. a new merit-based trial in federal court.
1: There you go. Yeah. The right to appeal. Yeah. That's cool. It That's something cool. we haven't really had then. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Then,
1: so. uh, and then other, uh, other provisions of this particular um, legislation would also speed up the notices to airmen, what we call NOTAMs, and mm-hmm. uh, improvement programs. And I think that would be good. And it would also limit the uh, or put a duration, rather, on temporary flight restrictions in the NOTAM. That was something I didn't realize was in this particular Pilots Act that was just introduced.
0: Yeah. So, very cool. We'll obviously have lots more about that. Um, But, uh, as you know, Senator Inhofe especially, and then um, with lots of other friends, including... uh, Representative McRita and Graves and others um, have been big supporters of this whole idea of fairness for
1: pilots. And they are aviators themselves. Yeah, and, so they know. And uh, didn't you just see a couple of them at the uh, at the Bob Hoover Awards? Yeah, it was just uh, mingling around with everybody else and having a good time. And, right. Yeah. So they, they really, uh, let's say they get their hands dirty in aviation. Yeah. They're in it. Yeah. In it to win it. You got you got it. So these guys are fighting for us, and we're glad they are there. Yeah, that's right. Awesome.
0: Okay. Boy, in, in the realm of what could you have predicted, I, I would not
1: have predicted this. Remos and STEMI are one. Now, that doesn't make In a way, it doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. But in a way, if you look at it, I mean, those aircraft are both, I mean, uh, the Remos. Got it. You know, got started in the light sport side of things. Mm-hmm. Did we? Did we give one of those things away? We did. Okay. Yeah, we did. It, it was a switch airplane. Yeah. Okay. And in
0: fact, Jill Tallman just went over and flew the new
1: one uh, a couple months ago. I gotcha.
0: Yeah. So their Remos, they
1: they had kind of a rough patch. They uh, had a rough couple of years. In fact, in one of our earlier podcasts, I think, we talked about them. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and the, that was when the company was going through some issues. Now, Stimmy, isn't that like a motor glider? Firm? You got it. You got it. Those things are so cool. They are really
0: cool. They got that massive wing and the yeah. retractable prop, and you know yeah, the, the prop pops and right out of the cowling. Yeah, that
1: is so neat. It if is our, neat. Our podcast listeners ought to check one of these out at some of the fly-ins that, yeah. that they'll be attending this year. I'm sure.
0: So they make the S12 and the S10, okay, which are these high-performance gliders. And so you think, like, okay, how did they ever get together? Except for the fact that both companies are in Germany, right? So. Okay. Um well, that's one commonality. It is. It is. Um, so it's because, you know, a lot happens behind the scenes that, that we never talk about and the companies never talk about with manufacturing subcomponents. Okay. One of the most famous oh, ones yeah. was, you know, Cirrus made the subcomponents for the Icon, right? Okay. okay. Used to. And so that's what happened here. Basically, Remos was making some of the components for
1: STEMI. I gotcha. And so they so, had built a relationship starting yes. several years ago. Yes. Okay. You got it. So, and so just consummating that relationship I
0: yes, guess. Yes, that's right. Making
1: it official. <laughs> kind of like a marriage. Yeah, they're not living in sin anymore. <laughs> okay, I love that. Okay, podcast listeners, that yeah. was that wasn't Dave T saying that. <laughs> just teasing. <laughs>
0: So we'll we'll see. Um, I you know, and so if you can get efficiencies through whatever sales and uh, marketing, and, of and everything else,
1: awesome. A lot of symmetry. Now, have you flown uh, either the two motor gliders or either the several motor gliders that they have had?
0: I have not flown a Stemi. I've only the only motor glider I've ever flown is the Grobe.
1: What was that like? It's
0: cool. Although the Grobe, oh man, I'm gonna feel bad even saying this. It, it was a bad airplane and not a great glider. Is that right? Yeah, it was great for training, uh-huh. and that's what we used it for. Yeah it was not on the level of these like these stemmies which are high performance they're sleek machines looking. yeah so
1: now what is the concept of a motor glider you can Get to altitude on your own and then soar.
0: Yeah, is that it? You okay. got it.
1: Stow the engine. Okay. Uh,
0: in Stemi's case, you close the cowling. It yeah. becomes you know completely aerodynamic, just like any other glider, and off you go. That's pretty cool.
1: It's really neat. Popular in Europe. Yes. Um, I don't know if we've seen as much popularity in the states, but it would be neat to do that kind of. They have that opportunity to to fly one of those.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're very cool. Very cool stuff. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, staying in Europe. Uh, let's do that uh, because the other sort of airplane news that's come out of there is with uh, with Diamond.
1: <laughs> Diamond is trying to mix us up, man. They're yes. coming out with some hot new models. Diamond has the DA50, and they've got three versions of that. they got the Dash 4, the Dash 5, and the Dash 7. Okay. So the difference being their engine horsepower and the seating configurations. The one thing that blew my mind about this deal was that the engines that are going to power these guys are basically diesel engines, but they're not the ones that Diamond helped. They're help not the Ostros. No, not the ones huh. that they helped to get to market. Gotcha. Okay. So how do you pronounce this? saffron? Yeah. saffron SMA diesel SMA. engines. yeah. So these are going to power the Dash 4 and the Dash 5. The Dash 4 is 4 place. Mm-hmm. Dash 5 is 5 place.
0: Oh, now it's making sense. Okay, so and about the seven is seven
1: please? Oh, right on, man. All right, we're together on that now. <laughs> oh, I love it. So, but this is pretty cool. Then those planes are—I think—I think they're sexy airplanes, to be they honest are. with you. Yeah, they really are. And uh, I think that they'll go some places that now you were st- you and I were talking about this a little bit uh, a little while ago. Now, has Diamond uh, been talking about this airplane for a while?
0: Oh yeah, the the fifty has been out there in some concept form or another for. For years uh-huh. and so I mean, they've put turboprops on it they're a fascinating company to me because it's like they spend so much on r and d yeah, probably more i I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm hesitating because I'm trying to think of another company that would spend more on r and d but they
1: do put a lot into what could happen yeah i mean they've done they had the jet for a while, yeah. Yeah you know, and but now here's the thing and now and I have told you a while back that I, I flew in that that katana model yeah. the two person model yeah, a while, a while back cool. which was neat even back then mm-hmm. as, you know years ago but um, it seems like they, you're headed down in the path of saying they put a lot in R&D but how much do they bring into the market versus yeah what they're putting into the yeah. behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, they they are, you know, it's funny. You'll see some companies go way too big in sales and marketing and not enough in R&D. Right. You'll see others, you know, have a decent mix. And then you'll see Diamond, which they seem to have a ton of investment in R&D and very little in sales and marketing. They just... That's where they fall
1: down at. Yeah, I mean, well, I, now they have the that DA sixty two model. Yeah, which is so cool. It is very cool. And, and they've also they also have had uh, through the years several very popular models.
0: Yeah, they they keep upgrading the DA forty. Right. The forty two. They keep upgrading the sixty two. They keep upgrading sixty two. Right. And I mean, what other company do you know that it's like they they make a gamble in diesel, it fails, and Instead of saying, ah, tag with it, they I, did not want to deal.
1: They didn't throw the towel now in. No, they make
0: their own engine. <laughs> right. I mean, it's amazing. More power to them. Yeah. It, so I, I don't know. I mean, and so that's what makes the 50 kind of weird. It's like we haven't really seen it yet, but yet they keep. You know, most companies I'd say, oh, yeah. forget it. It's a joke at this point. But I think they'll do it.
1: I'm sure they will. Yeah. The 62 came here to the AOPA uh, Homecoming Fly In yeah. back in 2015. So yeah. I got a chance to really, you know, climb around in one of those. That was cool. They are cool. And, and I know that Diamond is making a great push in the training market as well. Mm-hmm. So I've written, written a couple of stories about that too. They've got a pretty good business model for some of this. And, and the think, 40
0: would, honestly, it's 40 would be a great training airplane. That's a neat aircraft. Yeah. It's very easy to fly and great visibility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So now, before we leave Diamond, let's talk a little bit about that that Dash 7. Yeah. The 7, I guess,
0: they're also thinking, well, maybe it needs more power, and so there's even another engine option for that.
1: A retractable gear, and you could even get it with a turboprop engine. Cool. If it comes to market, it'll be very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'd like to see that. All right, so
0: we got a theme going. Um, Speaking of staying in Europe, speaking of if it ever comes to market, and speaking of engineering... This, though, I, you and I are both...
1: Engine, I get a oh, good pun, man. Uh, <laughs> Engine, engineering, I love uh, it.
0: We're totally into this. I, I am all in on this whole idea of electric. I think it's so cool. Uh-huh. So um, this this just came up, I guess, the past two days. It has. You know, the solar impulse, we talked about that. Back when, and I was like, "Oh, what's the point? Why are they doing this?" And I was kind of a jerk about it.
1: Thirty-five miles an hour, and they flew it around twenty-six thousand feet. But yeah, but we're talking a, a transcontinental yeah. flight.
0: Yeah, and um, and so I, I, I was a little bit of a a little jaded on all that electric
1: engine, battery power. Yeah, yeah.
0: But glad to see it looks like something might actually come from it.
1: Yeah, it looks like the son of Solar Impulse has started to take flight and it's a new company called H55 and it's being spearheaded by the co-founder of Solar Impulse pilot Andre Borsberg. Mm-hmm. And he spent I mean he spent days and nights in a cockpit yeah. traversing the Pacific and different legs around the world. Yeah. And that was a solar powered aircraft.
0: Yeah, completely. Yeah. Completely. So which is why it took him so long cuz you know of all the technical challenge but it was a it was a technical demonstrator, a, you know sort of a a moonshot for them.
1: Um, Long wing, multiple engines. But now the H55 is a single engine, single seat aircraft. It's supposed to Looks Flo- awesome. It's really it's cool. It's got that
0: elliptical sort of Spitfire the wing.
1: Spitfire-looking wing is pretty neat. I hadn't seen that in, in eons. Yeah. And it's going to have, what, about an hour's worth of uh, of endurance. Yeah. So I guess it's sort of a local, you know, kind of a local flyer, maybe a trainer. hmm But what a cool thing with electric engine and uh, solar and woo.
0: Yeah. So it's really neat. You know, we... Um uh, the extra 330, they've got that uh, Siemens motor oh, that's, that's got right. a bunch of speed records and everything is, else.
1: That thing is slick.
0: Yeah. And so when you start to get the motors, it's like you can put these really cool airframes around them. And so this uh, this company has, I guess they're calling the demonstrator the Aero 1, okay. small A, big E, small R, small O, 1. Uh, okay. <laughs> Which is All really right. confusing. Um, In case you want to Google it. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, they've already made 50, I guess, 50 hours of flying on the thing, which is really cool. Yeah. And uh, love it. So, you know, we'll see. This could just be
1: their first foray. It might or might not be powered by something made by Siemens under the hood. And Siemens was a big Solar Impulse, I guess, uh, Mm. uh, sponsor. Okay. Okay. And so that's interesting that's to right. know. makes sense, yeah. Basically, Siemens had a lot of input to some of the technology that was in the Solar Impulse. Yeah, so same team's working together. They
0: get to know each other. They see an engine. Solar Impulse people see an engine that works. Yeah. On it
1: goes. Make it work and uh, put it in a single-person plane that looks like a Spitfire. I'm there, man. I know. <laughs> I know. It's so cool. I was looking for an excuse to spend some money. Yeah, right. There we go, man. <laughs> uh, so... So we only covered
0: like five things today. There's tons of other stuff going on. And so we we didn't even have a a chance really to get into all of it. But um, I think we will kind of next show we'll try and wrap it up. But um, one just real quick uh, stuff and break from tradition a little bit. Um, You had a great story about the Mar-a-Lago thing that's going on and, and continuing to shut down Lantana.
1: Yeah, there's a little bit of an update on that, Ian. And uh, basically, we have um, a congresswoman from Florida that has spoken up and is very concerned about the economic uh, problems that that's causing the folks down at Lantana. Yeah. And, um, and just since then, uh, several... Um, uh, for, for truth and truth and fairness, uh, Democratic, you know, uh, Congresswoman. But also in the past couple of days, a couple of outspoken Republicans have also at their town hall meetings expressed concern about President Trump's frequent visits to Florida. Mm-hmm. And they were talking a little bit about um, the financial side of things, but also a little bit more about security. Because, yeah. like, we live right up here in uh, Frederick, Maryland, and Camp David is nearby. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, that's where a lot of the foreign leaders have been hosted. So there's a little bit of concern about that, a little bit of update on that. We might get into it later, but um, what well, did want to bring that up.
0: The thing about Mar-a-Lago's, obviously, with TFRs, you don't want to fly in those.
1: No, and that's not. No, and so
0: <laughs> you and I, we got the choice, right? right. We can take off and, and uh, fly around and turn away from a TFR.
1: Oh, yes, you could. Balloon pilots, though. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Talking about pre-flight planning yeah. being critical.
0: Yeah, it's like if the wind goes the wrong way, man... They're hosed. Where are you going to land? Yeah. So um, I, that
1: whole arena ballooning to me is totally foreign. I've never done it. You have not. No. Have you done it? I have. And I, I tell you what, it was so cool. You, when you launch, it's, everything is quiet. You mm. lift off. And it's like, poof, you're up. Awesome. This is great. And I tell you what, I had a fantastic host, Colin Graham. He's a balloonist from Montana and uh, uh hooked up with him in Albuquerque at the Albuquerque Balloon Fiesta. Mm-hmm. A cool. million people go to that event in yeah, October. So Colin's going to tell us a little bit about the similarities and the differences between hot air ballooning and fixed-wing aviation. Hi! All right. So uh, we have uh, Colin Graham via Skype. Colin is a balloonist. He's out in Montana. We had the pleasure of meeting over uh, in October during Albuquerque Balloon Fiesta time. Colin, how's it going today? David,
2: fantastic. Thanks for having me.
1: Good deal. We wanted to talk a little bit more about um, ballooning and how folks can get interested in ballooning. And I think that you have a really cool story of how you first got interested in aviation via ballooning. Go ahead and, and uh, give us the background on that.
2: Sure, sure. So um, my dad had been involved in uh, uh, hot air ballooning before I was actually ever born. And the uh, first thing that really kind of triggered my interest was a balloon landed in our front lawn in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, where we at that time lived.
1: Oh, a place close to my heart. Not
2: exactly, yeah. I know you came out of there. It was a great place to, to grow up. And uh, we... Uh, started chasing that balloon and uh, crewing and doing all the things that kind of are involved on the uh the crew side of ballooning and eventually just uh, got to the point where decided i really wanted to get my license and i uh, got my um, uh, student license at about 14 years old got my uh private at 16 and my commercial at 18 there you go uh, so, so that's kind of how that happened
1: rapid succession now you had a little transportation challenge uh Growing up there, getting your balloon licensing requirements knocked out, did your dad have to help you out with that a little bit?
2: He did, yeah. It was was quite interesting. I was uh, licensed to to solo uh, long before I could ever drive a vehicle, and so we would uh, end up kind of in some... Uh, sticky wicket situations where uh, he was the dad and i was the pilot and you know the attitude that kind of went along with that didn't work out too well but uh, (laughs) it was a lot of it was was a heck of a lot of fun you know we'd we'd be fighting before we ever got down to the end of the driveway
1: well now uh, the one thing about the ballooning that i learned when i was hanging out with you guys is that um it really is a family activity and that's uh, an indication right there between you you and your dad but Tell us a little bit about um, about the family aspect of ballooning, which is pretty uh, unique in aviation. Well,
2: and it's it's interesting in that, right, because you can't do it by yourself, or at least not really very well or safely by yourself. So it ends up involving you know, yourself and at least two or three other people to get the balloon put up and get the balloon put away. Mm-hmm. And through that, you end up with friends that want to hang out and tailgate and stuff like that. So... The especially on the balloon festival side of things, you end up with a large uh, uh, posse of people that fo- tend to follow you around. At least, if you ask yeah. them anyway.
1: You guys do like you say to do some tailgating after that. But then everyone pitches in to, to put the balloon envelope envelope up and get the basket sorted out and the ropes and stuff like exactly.
2: that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It takes you know uh, on some of these bigger baskets, you know, it can take up to five or six people just to move the thing around. Wow. Um, and the, the special shape balloon that we have, you know, it takes five or six people just to pull him out and get him put away. And, you know, at, at an absolute bare minimum and, you know, 10 people is more like it. So it, it, it ultimately takes a, um, a posse of people. And afterwards, <clears throat> you know, it's nice that we're able to uh, tailgate and eat food together and uh, you know, have some sodas and stuff like that.
1: Well, that that was a really cool aspect of it—the fact that it was a family organization, and and um, folks of, of all ages, young and old, can pitch in uh, and help help folks balloon. So, I think I saw some kids are about seven years old, and there are some folks even older older than me. I would say they're you know well into their sixties and all. So, what kind of opportunity does ballooning provide for folks of different ages?
2: It's quite versatile. Yeah, um, we have a lady on our crew in Albuquerque who's eighty six Six. Wow. Um, and, you know, she doesn't do a lot of physical lifting anymore, and nobody would expect her to, but she hands out cards and kind of handles the kids for us. And, yeah. You know, she's she's a very very uh, grandmotherly uh, character for all of us, and uh, we like that. And then we have uh, young William, who's uh, one of our friend David's uh, sons, and he's seven or eight years old. And he's pitching in, and he's doing what he can. He'll pull the tarp bags around and bring the bag, you know, uh, some, some of the lighter stuff and help us out with that yeah so, so yeah very very wide range for sure
1: i know when i was out there uh, helping crew a little bit for you guys uh, first of all it, it was I, w- I will say it was hard work but i was glad to be part of the crew but that seemed to be one way of really jumping into ballooning for those who don't have a balloon yet tell me a little bit about crewing for a balloonist
2: sure so the the crew aspect is generally the portal uh, that most people enter the balloon scene through. Um, and the the, uh, the 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 crew aspect is basically setting up, helping set up the balloon, chase the balloon, uh-huh. and put the balloon uh-huh. away, um, and that can take anywhere from you know a couple hours to three hours, depending on what you're you know flying and where you're flying and who you're flying with and and that sort of thing. And that that's where a lot of people enter it through. They decide, okay, well, this is something I really want to do. Sure. Uh, the, uh, the other thing is some people just jump right in as a pilot mm-hmm. and go for it. I would always try to drive people towards a crew entrance just yeah. so they know what they're getting into. They yeah, enter, get a taste
1: and of it. And yeah, like you said, it's a team effort kind of a deal. You need a, a balloon pilot. You need someone on the ground in the chase vehicle, at least one other person. And then you guys communicate sometimes through uh, two-way radios or aviation radios, that kind of thing. And I noticed that even at the, especially at the balloon fiesta, that um, pre-flight planning was all important for balloonists. Describe a little bit about your pre-flight procedure and and some of the background that helped you get going and learn how to really be an expert weather observer.
2: Sure, yeah. So what uh, in the business, so to speak, what we call it is uh, micro meteorology, And that's the practice of knowing your local conditions, where you're at. And, you know, airplane airplane pilots, just like yourself and myself, you know, we don't have to worry about some of that micro stuff, but Mm -hmm. the ballooning side really does. So you really have to be in tune with what's going on. Uh, One of the first things that we do, of course, is, you know, watch multiple internet sources for weather to make sure it's going to be a good day. Uh, at that point uh, toward the, you know, maybe the evening before the flight, we'll start looking at uh, the the TAFs. Yeah. Um, but the big thing that we do once we get out there, which is, is the real telltale sign, is the little, what we call the pie ball, pilot balloon.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: it's nothing but a helium balloon. We fill up with helium and let it go. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we can determine, you know, what the first couple thousand feet of winds are doing.
1: Well, are you watching this uh, pie ball as it floats skyward yes. or what?
2: Yep. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, some of us go as far as to get compasses and you know try, try to track it the exact direction. A lot of us kind of have a general idea of okay, that's going in a good direction. It's going to work just fine, no problem. Some some of the comp- competitive guys get get really down in it and try to figure out exactly which way it's tracking and, and this kind of thing. I, I don't personally do that. Gotcha. But, um, the the pie ball is very indicative of what is going to happen. You know, as soon as you take off. Gotcha. Uh, even though of course it's a very small balloon, it's. It's still gonna basically do the same thing. Is it the
1: uh, size? Like is it the size of a balloon that you would get like at the store for a party or something much. like that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, absolutely. You keep an eye on right. that. You watch the direction it's going, how long it takes to get there, and like, and and where it's blowing to.
2: Exactly. Yeah. In, in the case out here in the in the Mountain West, what we have a lot of is uh, down valley winds, uh, a low level at first. Mm-hmm. And uh, as the, as the little balloon climbs up, it usually turns around and goes back the other direction. Oh cool And that's also known very well throughout the world as the Albuquerque box
1: When it uh, happens in Albuquerque yeah it's a yeah it's, it's like it's a vertical a box
2: yeah it's, it, and it's not uh, specifically uh, only in Albuquerque it just happens to be, uh, basically high mountain valleys with a river running through them uh, is, is kind of what creates that whole dynamic. And it's, uh, so that's very interesting. And you can kind of see that uh, with the pilot balloon when you let it go.
1: That's really cool. So uh, talking a little bit more about the, the Albuquerque area, it like when we went flying, it was really cool that we launched from a field right there. And, and um, as you and I spoke about before, uh, like a million people, throughout the yep. you know the 10 days or so of the festival come and view it it's extremely popular it's very beautiful it's why I, the think can the people at canon camera say it's one of the most photographed events in in all of the world it but, is but the the albuquerque box so the the um winds start out in one direction and then and then they end up in another direction and god man when you and i went up we we ended up almost where we started
2: that's exactly right yeah and and a. Uh a fairly skilled pilot should be able to manipulate the winds in his, in his uh, favor. Now, of course, you can't do anything about it when it changes. But, uh, you know, the, that last day that you and I flew together, Yeah. we went out to the north and we came back to the south, and we weren't going to quite make the launch field again, but the wind changed and took it southeast. Yeah. And so uh, in, in watching some of the other pilots, I was able to, you know, realize, okay, if I just get down in this general area, I'm going to go right into the field, which is exactly what happened.
1: And you know what? You bring up a a good point to consider is that when you're ballooning, this is what I noticed, uh, Colin, when we were ballooning, you were so in tune to um, not just the weather, but the other senses that were all around us. And we could shout out to people on the ground when we got close and greet them. When we took off, you could smell the, the funnel cakes that they were baking over there. And it was just so cool. I mean, you just don't get that in a, in a fixed wing aircraft.
2: No, you sure don't. And, and you, you, you certainly can talk to folks and say hi to them and yeah, you know, what we do uh, when we fly around uh, certain holidays is, you know, wish them a Merry Christmas or Happy New Year, or, you know, whatever that's cool applicable day is. And they, they just think it's they, they, it tickles them pink because they don't, a lot of people on the ground don't realize that we can hear them um, or, or that we can talk to them. So, <laughs> or you, you can know, see them. <laughs> we've had some interesting things happen over the years, as you might imagine.
1: Oh, well, we might have to save that for another podcast. I'm Absolutely. pretty curious about that. But um, uh, one thing that I noticed that people, um, and Albuquerque, and I'm assuming elsewhere, really um, uh, open, open their uh, property, you know, w- w- they have their property with open arms. They're, uh, if you talk to them ahead of time or shout out to them, hey, can we land there? You know, people are pretty cool about uh, setting down a balloon on their property. But I noticed that you did shout out to them and while well, we had this one landing and asked if it was okay to land in their field.
2: Sure, yeah. So the, the difference being there are landings when you have that opportunity to, to holler down or you have the opportunity to send the crew ahead mm-hmm. you know, because you, you have a reasonable amount of certainty that you're going to end up there. But there are landings like you, you described there that, okay, this is where we're going to be and it's three or four, you know, may, maybe 10 or 15 seconds and you don't have that time. Ideally in that scenario what you would do is keep the balloon inflated and then have the crew or somebody you know a passenger from the basket go ask permission to stay. and sometimes you'll get somebody that says no and in that case you you generally would fly on yeah. unless it's a safety reason and then you go from yeah. there. but you know I would say um, somewhere 75 80 percent of people are usually pretty happy to see you yeah
1: and, and balloons are they're so graceful, they're so pretty. That uh, it really is it's kind of a it's a fun thing and it's just beautiful. One thing I noticed at the uh, Albuquerque Balloon Festival, and I was going to bring this up, is that when you guys had this special event called the uh, Balloon Glodio, that was an evening event. and The sun was setting, and the balloon pilots were all uh, on this field and and really um, you know firing up your 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 gas burners and all. It, it was beautiful, and uh, but man, y'all were like rock stars, Colin. People. Gathered around you in little groups and they were shouting questions at you and things like that. I and mean, tell me a little bit about the Glodio.
2: Sure. So, uh, some many years ago now, 25 years or so ago, the Albuquerque folks, uh, w- one of, and backing up a little bit, I got past myself there, uh, one of the more popular events at, at most balloon festivals is the evening balloon glow. Well, Albuquerque was able to attract a tremendous amount of special shapes. Oh yeah, which are balloons that are shaped in different, uh, you know, characters and stuff like that, and they were able to put a large group of special shapes together and hold the special shape Glodeo. and and the reason for that name is the primary event is the special shapes rodeo in the mornings, so that's where that comes from. So it's from. a
1: rodeo in the morning and a glodio in the evening. That's correct. Yeah,
2: yeah, and so um, so that's been an incredibly popular event for them because people that otherwise don't want to get up early in the morning to see the balloon launch.
1: Ah. Uh, They
2: can come in at 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening and partake in the static display of the balloons. Gotcha. And in the case of Albuquerque, and then again, a lot of other events, they do a a rather large fireworks display after the event is all over for the evening.
1: Well, let let me let let our podcast audience know a little bit more about the special shapes balloon uh, situation. You actually have a really cool one called Bud E. Beaver. And for the folks who haven't seen Buddy Beaver, you, could, you can grab a site on uh, beaverballoon.com. And Buddy Beaver, I know he started out as a different shape, but tell us a little bit about how you got into special shapes, how popular they are, and a little bit about Buddy Beaver.
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, the, the, the shape side of the business is, is particularly unique. Uh, there's not a whole lot of people that are into it uh, c- compared to, you know say, your your, your round balloons, uh-huh. uh, as we call them in the business. And uh, I got into it back in the, oh, I don't even know, 2008, 2009 time frame. I, I was able to purchase uh, a jack-in-the-box yeah. special-shaped balloon.
1: And this thing was and tall, and, too, man. It was like, yeah, it was, what, seven
2: stories tall? 110, 120 feet tall. Oh, man. Yeah, we, we took him to China, New Zealand, Mexico, Canada. That's um, great. Like and a so, and
1: world tour. That
2: comes out of some of these international events wanting to have a special guest that they can advertise. Oh, right. Try to Try to drive more crowds and stuff. Yeah. And I got out of it for a couple of years and then decided that I wanted to get back in. And we were able to find uh, Buddy Beaver, uh, who was owned by a friend of mine out of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd be kind of joking about it for many years, about the fact that I need, needed to buy his beaver, <laughs> which <you> know, <laughs> can be misconstrued in many ways. But,
1: uh, but, but Buddy Beaver is a family-oriented beaver, I must tell yes, our yes. listeners. Yeah,
2: that is correct. Yeah, and, and uh, the- It attracts
1: a lot of attention at, at the shows, too.
2: It does, yeah. So, uh, Buddy Beaver initially started out as Mr. Potato Head, uh-huh. and and he is the recipient of Ballooning's only extreme makeover. <laughs> uh, about two years after he was built as Mr. Potato Head, there was a disagreement between the parties involved that allowed that character to be made in the first place. Uh-huh. And Dave and Kathy, the, the original owners, had uh, you know almost hundred thousand dollars in this balloon envelope. <laughs> And it was all brown. I mean, uh, the whole thing was brown. So it was like, well, what are we going to do with it? And, and somewhere, the story goes, on the, on the other side of Sandia Mountain in Albuquerque one uh, year, they said, well, why not a beaver? And for another $40,000, uh, they sent this balloon back in for a retrofit. A, for a, retrofit for a conversion.
1: Teeth wow.
2: Teeth and a tail and yeah, all this stuff that, that beavers have. And uh, he's been Buddy Beaver ever since then.
1: And he does have a, a d- very distinctive face, a, a very charming, uh, fun-loving face, and a little hat. And, and he's uh, perpetually waving one of his mittened uh, arms, it looks it like.
2: <laughs> yes, that's correct, yes. Oh, well, yeah, So yeah, Buddy, what, what,
1: Buddy Beaver is a popular, a popular animal at the, at the, the special-shaped events, for sure.
2: He is, yeah. In fact, uh, here in just about 10 days, where, uh, he is already in country, uh, but he's, he's going to Thailand, Whoa, and, uh, we are going with him, so that should be a fun trip. We're taking a couple of the crew chiefs from Albuquerque over and uh, uh, spending about twelve days in in country.
1: So you were telling me earlier that the special shapes are a huge draw overseas and uh, and also here in the states as well. but um, but folks don't necessarily have to go that expensive route if they want to get into ballooning. I noticed um, Colin, I noticed that some of the balloons were for sale at the sort of the buy and swap table kind of about the same price as a Cessna 152, maybe you know $15,000, $20, something like that.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you can you can get an entry-level balloon even less than that, even in down into the $10,000 or, or even less range. It awesome. Depends on what you want to get and you know how many hours it has on it. Similar. The, the, the interesting thing about balloons, of course, is they do not last as long as a, as a fixed-wing airplane in terms of hours. The, with a lot of balloons, the most you're going to hope for is is somewhere between 500 and 750 hours total time. Uh, so the higher hours they get, the worse that they fly, the, the more fuel they burn, et cetera. So, so those are the balloons you can get for, for pretty inexpensive prices. When hmm. you start getting into new stuff, uh, brand new stuff, you know, you're looking in the Thirty-five thousand on up category.
1: Gotcha. So now some of the baskets are uh, for you know basically two people, and some of them are are very large. And I know some of the envelopes are huge. Can give me a little bit. Of, uh, give our podcast listeners a little bit of a rundown of the range and sizes, and kind of what they could expect if they were going to get involved in ballooning. What they could look at and what they could do.
2: Sure. So so there's sizes all the way down. As small as one-man balloons um, that just carry them—you know, their, their pilot and a tank on the on the pilot's back—that's uh-huh. called a cloud hopper. I, I've always kind of wanted one of those, actually. But anyway, <laughs> the, uh, the the sizes that kind of go up from there is a pilot plus two, uh-huh. pilot plus one, and then you could just keep on climbing from there. The the largest balloon in the world currently is in France,
1: hmm?
2: uh, and it's flying a pilot plus forty-two.
1: Oh man. The envelope must be huge for that.
2: Yeah, it's it's like four times the size of our biggest one, which holds a pilot plus 10. So, yeah, it, it all comes down to what you want to do. And, of course, most of the people flying the very, very large balloons are doing it uh, because they have customers and, and clients that want yeah. to pay
1: to, to, to fly rides. Commercially, so, for, for sure. Yeah.
2: I would say your average sport balloonist is a pilot plus two, gotcha. maybe a pilot plus four.
1: So maybe, you know, pilot and, and close friends or family, something like that. Right. and and, um, let me let our podcast listeners know that your other website is montanaballoon.com and you do operate out of montana and um, i know you're out of big sky country most of the time but you do travel all around the country and uh, to different uh, shows when you can but um, you landed in montana some years ago but you started ballooning over here on the east coast we did
2: yeah absolutely and initially started all of my flight training in the roanoke virginia area yeah not too far from aopa headquarters there and the the you know, flying area down there is very challenging so I, I like to think that it kind of you know seasoned me into the pilot that i am today uh heavily forested mountainous all of that so uh, and on top of that You do not get the box winds that we do out here in the West. Uh, You get one direction and usually maybe a variance of 20 or 30 degrees, uh, and that's it.
1: Over here, it's more point-to-point, then?
2: It is, yeah, much more so.
1: Gotcha. So, um, and also, as you you did mention something where the Appalachian Mountains are, you know, hard up against Frederick, Maryland, and up and down the East Coast, and not a very hospitable place to land if you really had an emergency or something, or even just a normal landing, right?
2: Right, yeah. A lot of times what ends up happening toward the end of those flights is you get down real low, like at the treetop level, Mm -hmm. sometimes even going through the trees with the basket, and you're just looking for anything you can get into. Now, if you flight plan correctly, you shouldn't get into those areas ideally unless you have a wind change or something along those right lines. Um, but yeah I've, I've definitely been there before no doubt about that
1: gotcha now one of the favorite things that a lot of b- balloonists like to do is they t- like to take a little basket dip into a, a to a lake or a stream or something like that what's that all about
2: yeah they call it uh, the splash and dash and basically, it, it just allows you to put the, the the very edge of the bottom edge of the basket in the in a lake, or river, or stream, you know, whatever. Uh, in the case of Albuquerque, uh, I think you were in, you and I were able to do it in the Rio Grande River, um, which is particularly neat because it's very very shallow. That's beautiful. As, as as little as a couple of inches deep, um, and you can literally just park the balloon in the middle of the creek and you know have a passenger get out, and take pictures, or talk to the people that are on the shore, uh, watch the uh, kayaks go by. Uh, it, it's, it's really neat. It
1: is special and you can't really do that in an aircraft, although you know if you're a seaplane rated pilot like yours truly, which I got my rating last year, um, you, can, you can kind of somewhat duplicate that but you're, you're not splashing and dashing and you're, you're landing and then it's loud and then you're turning around and you know, water rudders this and you know the waves and stuff like that. So it's a a little bit different when you're in a balloon. It's so calm. It's quiet. You just do that gradual dip, and it's just gorgeous.
2: It's it's really neat. Yeah, I would love to get my seaplane ready. I I don't think I realized you had yours.
1: Oh, man. I don't mean to brag. But now, speaking of bragging, you've got your multi-engine over the winter. And uh, let our podcast listeners know what you might be doing when you're not flying your balloons. Sure. So uh,
2: for a living, officially, I uh, fly King Air turboprops now uh out that, of uh here out of montana that's so uh, cool king air 200 and king air 90s depending on the day <clears throat> whatever they have me doing yeah uh so i've got my instrument uh, commercial instrument multi-engine airplane rating um well, is,
1: what's yeah. neat about that you're explaining to me the other day and you know, again stop me if you don't want our our listeners to know but it sounds like it's a, just a cool environment to use general aviation. To its maximum potential, you're sure. actually you're flying uh, doctors across the state for medical missions. Uh, I think that's just such a cool thing.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. The uh, company that I work for has contracts with a couple of larger hospitals uh, in the Billings, Montana area, mm-hmm. and we provide uh, outreach services to them. Montana, if you've ever looked at it on the map, is a very, very large state. Yeah. Uh, most of our towns of any significance are hundreds of miles in between. Uh, and like, you know, take for example, uh, 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 Billings to, uh, Sydney, Montana, it's five, six hour drive Well, we can be over there in 45 minutes. Are you
1: time. crossing over uh, in and out of the mountains when you do that? Or is it just from uh, one end of the state from, to the other?
2: From, from Billings East, it's pretty much flat terrain, pretty, yeah? pretty, uh, pretty Midwestern style terrain, but, it's long. But, uh, everything West of Billings is pretty mountainous. Gotcha. Um, you know, it's, the state's kind of split in half in that regard. So, yeah, uh, so we're providing you know, a, a very vital aspect of uh, medical services to some of these uh, small towns that don't have the populations to support uh, the actual specialists. That-
1: That's neat. You're uh, flying a pretty heavy-duty aircraft on one end of the spectrum. You've got ballooning on the other. Give me one or two comparisons and contrasts between uh, maybe ballooning and uh, in fixed-wing aviation, if you could. Well,
2: sure. You know, you have the whole airspace uh, similarities because you're operating in the same system as as you know the fixed wing uh, uh, public. Sure. Does. Uh, you have the weather aspect. Certainly, it's it's more micro on the balloon yeah. side. Uh, and you know, one of the big things I would say is pilot decision making. Exactly. That really comes down to uh, a, a major part of, of being able to fly and and making those decisions. And with ballooning. I tend to think after having, you know, 1500 hours in airplanes now, uh, that they, you know, ballooning really requires almost more decision making than it does in an airplane uh, because you just don't know where you're going, you don't have directional control. So the the whole thing comes down to, you know, being will billi- being willing to bend when the wind blows sure. and make adjustments on the fly.
1: And proper pre-flight planning that you mentioned in uh, several minutes ago in the podcast—that's a key bit, you know, especially during the micro meteorology phase, checking things Absolutely. out. And, um, uh, I don't, and I hate to even bring it up, but we know that there's been some bad um, decision making with uh, other um, balloon, commercial balloon operators in the past that have led to some tragedies. And there are, are some rumors that that some of the uh, requirements might change for commercial. Balloonist, but right now, what do you need to be a commercial balloonist? Like, do you need a medical certificate?
2: You do not currently need a medical certificate. Uh, What we've seen after the last uh, tragedy in Texas is the insurance companies uh, beginning to require a second class medical uh, for certain sizes of balloons. Okay. uh, But but they're 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 holding down on that pretty pretty close to the sport size guys. And there's some, there's a lot of controversy in ballooning uh, right now uh, over that whole situation because there are a lot of people that most likely can't get a medical mm-hmm. uh, if they tried, and so it's going to cause some some heartache in the in the balloon industry. I
1: see you I for saying.
2: one uh, support uh, a medical uh, requirement and and possibly even uh, bringing uh, commercial balloon operations under the uh, flight scene. Uh, fars but I'm one of the few
1: I understand and I know like you said it is controversial and there's uh, arguments on both sides of the coin for that for that but we you know as pilots we just want to do the safest thing we can and be safe and have as much um, you know have as much knowledge as we can going into it so but I, I do That's know exactly that right. um, there might be some changes blowing on the horizon for that but we'll just have to wait and see
2: yeah and I don't think it's going to be anything that would really deter especially Uh, an already rated uh, airplane pilot. I don't think it's going to be anything that would deter uh, that, that uh, aspect of, of, of folks entering the sport.
1: Okay. Well, look, I know that you've got some appointments to meet uh, today and uh, one of them with your lovely wife, Brittany. Um, She was actually helping out uh, on the crew. She's an integral part of the crew when I met you guys and she is, um, she's a cool person. Also, I wanted to just let our listeners know that, that, um, with Brittany's help, some folks who were um, who were challenged physically were able to participate in ballooning. Tell us a little bit about what she does and, and some of the special things that she's brought into ballooning.
2: Right. So, so I met Brittany uh, some years ago uh, when we were living in Arizona together. And she is a certified sign language interpreter, among other things. But she's also a K-12 certified teacher um, and teaches uh, in sign language to deaf and hard hearing children. Uh, And that's been her passion since she was in college. Uh, And and so she's provided a very, uh, just just with that alone has provided a very unique aspect to the whole uh, balloon team that we have going here. Uh, One of the things that happened to us just a few years ago in Albuquerque that you're referencing is a couple of deaf people, actually three or four deaf people Found out, I don't even know through any who or what, but they found out that Brittany was a, was a sign language interpreter and they, they approached us and said, hey, can we help you with your team? You know, because you, you can actually communicate with us. So they helped us that entire year and then the next year. And I think they were some of them have moved away from the area now. So we, we lost a few of them for that reason. But um, Brittany was honored by the Balloon Fiesta, which is the largest balloon event in the world as the Balloon Fiesta Ambassador of the Day uh, for helping those folks a couple of years back. So that was a real honor for her.
1: That is uh, so cool. And it, yeah. and it shows you how folks of all walks and ages can get involved in this, really, this family event, this family sport. Absolutely. Well, that's cool. Well, speaking of Brittany, I know that you guys uh, might have a lunch appointment today, and I don't want to hold you up too much. I wanted to remind our listeners that... Um, that they could find you at montanaballoon.com and also they could uh, find you guys at beaverballoon.com let us know uh, before we sign off Colin where you're going to be this summer and for the next couple of months if folks want to track you down
2: you know we're we're pretty much uh, based in Montana these days we don't do a whole lot else we do albuquerque we'll we'll be doing the one in thailand I think uh, come next uh, winter we'll do some more international events. I've got some things kind of cooking there. The, uh, we already have an invitation to Mexico and to uh, the Philippines, and I'm working on one uh, to New Zealand as well, which which is where we, same one we've already been to. But but you know one of the things I'd like to say to you, David, and and the whole staff over there at AOPA is uh, uh, those of us out here in the pilot community really appreciate uh, everything that you guys do for us. We uh, we just in, in, enjoy the whole aspect of AOPA.
1: Well, Co- Colin, you guys are too kind. Brittany as well. Um, you guys open your arms to us like a family, which we really appreciated it. And I should remind our listeners that um, if they want to check out a little bit more of the ballooning that you and I did um, back in October, they could go to AOPA dot org and they could um they could just search up for uh, albuquerque or balloon fiesta and they can see some of those special shaped balloons and buddy beaver and they can get a get a good look at your pretty face and and (laughs) your your whole teams (laughs) so but colin thank you so much for uh reaching out to us and also for being a really good um, aviation ambassador not just in ballooning but fixing as well and sharing some of the contrast and similarities with us today on the, on the hangar talk podcast. So Colin, thanks again for spending so much time with us uh, here at AOPA on hangar talk. And we hope that you have a safe and very uh, exciting summer and uh, the trip to Thailand and everything. We'll look forward to catching up to you again, maybe at the uh, balloon fiesta again in October.
2: Yeah. We would love to have you guys anywhere, anytime that you're, that you're uh, around can be around. Uh, You were a great asset to the team down there this year and everybody enjoyed getting to meet you. So Uh, thank you for uh, involving me here with the hangar talk podcast Uh, and we look forward to uh, discussing more ballooning and fixed wing stuff in the future all
1: right colin thanks i enjoyed it
2: thanks david all right see see you soon all
0: right david um i don't know it was really interesting hearing it i don't know yet still if I could face my fear and get up in the whole balloon thing, but uh, I'm, I'm a little step closer.
1: I'm glad you, that you have an open mind about that, Ian, and yeah. it is different. You either uh, love it or you get a panic attack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the, I'm in the, the boat of where I love it. <laughs>
0: all right, and I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hanson.
1: And I'm David Tulis. Hey, you can find us at apaorg slash talk or email us at hangertalk at aopa.org. Don't forget, we're now on iTunes and available at Sporty's Takeoff app. Yeah, make sure you rate us on
0: iTunes. And don't forget to email us. We want to hear from you. We'll see you next time, dude. See you and Thanks.